may be seated. We're going to read our scripture passage that Deemer is going to be preaching from this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we'd be happy to get you one. So just raise your hand and Mark's in the back there with some extra Bibles. We'll be in Acts chapter 17 again this week. Acts chapter 17, the same passage we looked at last week, verses 1 through 15. Acts chapter 17, we're continuing to travel through Acts verse by verse, continuing to look at really the acts of the Holy Spirit as he starts the church. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after he received a command for, Saul and, for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray. Father, I do pray, sincerely pray, Lord, that, um, that we would be a church that receives the word with eagerness, just as the Bereans did. But that does not mean that we receive it mindlessly. To receive the word with eagerness means that we're going to go to the word and examine it, get deep into it. Let it infiltrate our hearts. Let it infiltrate our lives. Let it change everything about us so that we can know for sure that what's in there is true. And God, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to focus on what the main message of the whole Scriptures is. The same message that the Bereans sought to prove by their examinations of the Scriptures. And that is that Jesus Christ came as a babe as we celebrate here in the next few weeks. And that he rose, and he died, and that he rose again. 
for the sins of the world. So God, we pray right now that you'd help us focus our hearts on you. Help us to listen closely to what you want to say to us. Open our ears. Open our minds. Let us be expository listeners as Deemer expository preaches the word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think that um, we all know that it is possible for someone to, to waste their life, to live 60, 70, 80 years, maybe longer if God gives them the strength it's possible to be on the planet for all that time and for them to waste their life. But what frightens me and what, frighten, what should frighten you is that it is also possible for a Christian to waste his life. And that scares me to death. One of the scriptures that came to my mind uh, was uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Listen to what Paul says. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, Precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. What a frightening passage. The end of that passage describes somebody who's not lost, describes somebody who is a Christian. The text says he himself will be saved. But we get a picture of the works of this person's life that are being examined on that day before God. And, and we get a picture of, of, these, of, of works that are like wood or hay or straw being burned up. Works that are having no lasting value, no eternal value, things that are a waste. None of us want to be that man described in 1 Corinthians. We want our lives to count. We want to make a difference. We want to, I dare say, change the world. I mean, that's one of the reasons why our motto at Harbin says that we are, we are a church where the generations converge to enjoy God and to change the world. We all want to be part of something that is world-changing. We all want our life to count. We all want to make a difference. We all want to have an impact. And how do we go about doing that? Where do we begin? We, we tend to think that there's really nothing that we can do to make a difference, right? It's just little old me. It's just little old you. What can we do? And we tend to think uh, when we consider the types of people who are, who are really impacting the world, who, are we, who do we normally think of? We think of presidents, we think of kings, we think of wealthy people, people of great means, powerful people, people of, of great persuasion, elite people, super smart people, and yet it is possible to be all of those things and waste your life. That's not the way to shape the world in God's economy, at least not shaping it in a way that last forever. If you really want to change the world, if you really want to be where the action is at, if you really want your life to count and you want to do works of lasting value, you will do best to turn your eyes away from those that the world esteems, those that the world lifts up high, and rather turn your eyes to what the scripture says about living a life 
that really makes a difference. Now last week we began to look at Acts chapter 17 and uh, there's an amazing accusation that's thrown at Paul and his companion uh, companion Silas in verse 6. Look at it with me. Look at what they say in the last part of verse 6 there. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down, they've also come here. Paul had a reputation for being a man that was turning the world upside down. They had heard about Paul, and these people are now saying, these guys, we've heard about them. They've been in other towns. There's been a kind of an uproar and upheaval going wherever they have, wherever they have traveled. And these same people now who are, who've been turning the world upside down, they're here. Paul's reputation preceded him. And it's interesting. Uh, what we see here in Acts 17 in Thessalonica with the, with, the, with the mobs and the uproar, that was not just an isolated incident. Practically everywhere that Paul went, there was a stir. Practically everywhere that he went, there was an uproar. There was controversy. In Acts 14, Paul was in Lystra preaching the gospel, and some Jews, some enemies of the gospel, they stir up the crowd, and he ends up, Paul ends up being stoned and left for dead. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel in Philippi. They end up being accused of causing a disturbance uh, in the city. They are beaten. They are thrown in jail. And we see this pattern continuing in Acts over and over and over again. So everywhere Paul is going, he's making waves. And it, it was not all negative by the way. It wasn't all just bad things happening. Things were being shaken up, both positive and negative. In Acts 16, we see a suicidal Philippian jailer finding life in Jesus Christ. A demon-possessed slave girl finding freedom. And even in today's passage, despite the controversy that is stirred up in Thessalonica and in Berea, we see people believing and we see people converting to Christ. Everywhere Paul goes, he's leaving behind him just a string of changed lives, new disciples, new churches. And despite opposition in nearly every place that he went, Paul's gospel message is unstoppable. And God is saving Jews, and God is saving Gentiles, and people from all walks of life. And he's bringing them and incorporating them into the family of God. And the question that we began to look at last week is, what was it about Paul? What was it about his ministry? What was it about his lifestyle? That, what was it about him and his, his life that was lived out in such a way that he could be accused of turning the world upside down? And how do you make your life count? If you really want to make a difference in the world... Forget about pursuing wealth. Forget about pursuing power. Forget about pursuing influence. You're better off pursuing the type of lifestyle that we see Paul leading in Acts 17 and throughout the rest of the book for that matter. And last week we began to look at four things, four ingredients when you combine them into your life and into your ministry, you'll be on your way to making your life count big time and not wasting your life. And you might even be accused one day of turning the world upside down. Those four things were this, being bold, being word-centered or Bible-centered, scripture-centered, preaching the suffering and risen Christ, and proclaiming Jesus as king. And last week we covered the first two, being bold and being word-centered. And, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to review or rehash those points, but I made a case last week that without being bold for the gospel, 
uh, uh, without your life, your ministry, uh, your speech, be word-centered or Bible-centered, you will never be accused of turning the world upside down. And if you missed all that, uh, you can check out last week's message uh, on the website, harbinchurch.org. It's there. Um, And in addition to that, I made an executive decision to cut out my fourth point. (laughs) Okay, so we covered points one and two last week. I was going to do points two and three this week. I decided to cut out point four in regards to proclaiming Jesus as king. Not because it's not important, but I've got a lot to say to you this morning on my third point. And I'd rather shelve my fourth point for for a later discussion and and do it justice at a later time. It's not going to be next week. I'm sure that Steve is itching to get back into the pulpit. And I'm sure you're eager to to hear him uh, and not just me. Uh, So I'm just going to, uh, I'm not going to extend this uh, series for three weeks. We'll talk about the kingship of Jesus another time. So there's being bold, there's being word-centered, and then there is a third ingredient to turning the world upside down. That is preaching the suffering, dying, and risen Christ. Look at Acts 17 again, verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. The suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ was at the core of Paul's message to unbelievers, to the lost. Everywhere that Paul went, he talked about this. Now, you might say, duh, Deemer, if you are going to witness... If you were going to evangelize lost people, then of course you're going to talk about the cross. Of course you're going to talk about the resurrection. Isn't that obvious? Well, it's not obvious to everyone. You have plenty of churches and you have plenty of preachers who do not have the cross at the center of their evangelistic efforts. You have, you have ministries that have signs and wonders at the center of what they do. You have lots of those around. You have these mass crusades that go from city to city, and, and, and there will appear to be all sorts of signs and wonders and healings and miracles, but you have little to no message about the true significance of the sufferings, the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the rationale of some of these ministries uh, that they have is that, well, what we're doing is, we're using signs and wonders as a means of attracting people, a way of getting people's attention, a way of, of authenticating that the ministry is from God. And there's an expectation that lost people will see these things and they will say, oh, okay, I see signs, I see wonders, I see miracles. Am I popping here or we've got a little sound issue there? Maybe turn me down a little bit. Okay, I see all those things going on. I see health and wealth See, all these cool things happening at these evangelistic crusades, man, that's the kind of God that I want to serve, and I want in on that. And that's the rationale that a lot of these ministries um, operate on. Some ministries and churches centered around signs and wonders. I think it's, it's interesting. You know, Jesus spent three years doing all kinds of signs and all kinds of wonders and all kinds of amazing things, healings and casting out demons and all these sorts of wonderful things. And most of the people rejected him. 
And yet you have ministries and churches that are centered around signs and wonders. But then there are other churches who have a different strategy for reaching unbelievers. The center of their outreach has to do with trying to meet practical felt needs as a tool to draw people to Jesus. They have what we would call a wisdom strategy. Now the Bible speaks of all kinds of areas and we're going to use the Bible to show unbelievers how scriptural principles work in their life and then maybe they will come to Jesus. That's a strategy, an evangelistic strategy that some churches and ministries use. So you have churches where one week you have a sermon called Five Tips for a Successful Marriage. Next week you have a message called What the Bible Says About Your Finances. Another week, next week you have a have a, a message on uh, what the Bible says about conflict management. And while it's true that the Bible has a lot to say about all those very real and practical areas, very helpful stuff to say on those things, uh, if that approach is at the center of your gospel preaching, you won't turn the world upside down, and you're not really preaching a gospel. Don't focus on signs and wonders. Don't focus on practical wisdom. Rather, let's follow the example of Paul who says this in 1 Corinthians, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. And then Paul says also in 1 Corinthians, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross was at the heart of Paul's gospel to the Gentiles. It was also the center of his gospel message to the Jews. As we see in Acts 17 here, look at this, and again in verse 3, he's at the synagogue he is reaching out to Jewish people, and it says in verse 3, he is, he is opening up the scriptures, and he is explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That's really interesting. And as I've been meditating on Acts 17 for weeks now, uh, that, that phrase really stuck out to me. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That word necessary I think is interesting for a couple of reasons. For starters, there's an insinuation that the Jews did not think it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And by the way, as an aside, we were talking about the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. It means anointed one. In the Hebrew, it's Mashiach. Messiah. And that, that title had royal implications, kingship implications. Like I said, we're not going to delve deeply into talking about the kingship of Christ today, but that, that, that word Christ has royal implications. And they, as a whole, the Jews, did not think it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. The Jews did expect a Christ to come. They did expect a Mashiach a king to come. But they did not expect a suffering savior to come. They expected a savior, all right. They expected someone to come and save them from the Romans. They were ready for Messiah to come and to destroy the Romans and free Israel from Rome's tyranny. The idea of a suffering and a uh, uh, 
dying Savior was outrageous to the Jews. Even Jesus' own disciples had a hard time grasping this. They had a hard time figuring this out. This was what Jesus came to do. This is why when Jesus, when he was talking about his impending suffering and his impending death on a cross, the Bible says that Peter rebuked Jesus. I don't know if you know that story or remember that story. Can you imagine that? Peter rebuking Jesus about something? But why? Why did Peter rebuke Jesus? Peter rebuked Jesus because in his head, the idea of Jesus going to the cross was crazy talk. You're the Messiah, Jesus. You you can't let yourself be killed. We've got a kingdom to establish. It's time to rock and roll and get busy. You can't die on us. But how does Jesus respond to Peter? Jesus says, Peter, she says to Peter, get behind me. Satan, you have in mind the things of men. You don't have in mind the things of God. See, man had one, has one set of expectations for Christ. And with the Jews, those expectations did not include dying. But God had another expectation for Christ. And that included the cross. Isaiah 53 says... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. In other words, the cross wasn't an accident. It was in the purpose of God to do this. It was in the will of the Lord to crush the Christ. And I would not be surprised in the least if Isaiah 53 was one of the scriptures that Paul took his Jewish brothers to in Acts chapter 17. Uh, and opening up the Old Testament and telling him, you see guys, you see, it's, it's right here in the scriptures. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. It was in the plan of God all along to do this. And why? Why was it in God's plan to crush Jesus? Why, why does God take his beloved son, whom he has loved from eternity past, and crush him and crucify him? The reason he did it is because that was the only way he could save you and me. There there was no other way to rescue his children from hell. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is about to face the cross. And he is praying to the Father. And he is in great anguish. And the scripture says that he is in such mental and emotional anguish that he is sweating drops of blood. Do you remember what Jesus prayed to the Father in the garden? He said, he fell on his face and he said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What, what is Jesus praying? He's saying, he's saying, God, if there's any possible way that what I'm about to face can be avoided, let it be. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And how does the Father answer Jesus' prayer? He answers it by letting his will be done and by crushing Jesus. But that still begs the question, why? Why Why was it necessary for Christ to be crushed, for you to be forgiven? I say that that's necessary. Why is it necessary? The answer is because the wages of sin is death. 
And God has been warning mankind of this from the very beginning. God told Adam in the garden, in the paradise of God, that the day you eat from the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Adam eats the fruit, and God says to him, Adam, from dust you came, from dust you will return. That's physical death. But what's more, Adam is separated from God and driven out of the garden. Spiritual death. A spiritual death left unchecked leads to hell where man is doomed to experience the wrath and the judgment of God for eternity. And because we are all connected to Adam, because we're in Adam, because Adam is our representative, we take on his sinful nature and we share Adam's doomed fate. But that further begs the question. You say, Deemer, the wages of sin is death, but Christ had no sin. How does this make sense? Well, I want to, again, go back to Isaiah 53. And, and, and turn there with me. We're going we're gonna to examine this a little bit. It's Isaiah 53. It's hard for me to imagine that Paul had, did not go to where I'm about to take you in Isaiah 53. I mean, Paul's goal is to convince the Jews from the Old Testament that it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and die. Where else are you going to go that says it better and more plain than Isaiah 53? Again, turn there with me if you will. I don't want you to just listen to this. I want you to see this, read this. I want you to let this sink into your brain. I want you to wrap your mind around what Isaiah 53 is saying because this is so incredible. This is so mind-blowing and amazing when you think about what God did. And these verses that I'm going to read to you in Isaiah 53, this is what Christmas is all about. I mean, there are other Old Testament scriptures you can go to, but this has got to be at the top of the list. And it helps us to see how Christ, who has no sin, is paying the wages of sin. Let's start in verse 4. This is talking about the coming Christ. Isaiah is writing this 700 years before Jesus comes. And listen to what Isaiah says, inspired by the Spirit, in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Okay, this is talking about Messiah. I can see Paul saying, looking at verse 4, you, you, you Jewish brothers, where do you see anything in here about Christ coming to overthrow the Romans? Okay, Verse 4, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All right? Christ's suffering for our sins. We know that already. That still doesn't answer, fully answer the question in regards to how this works. How and why a sinless person is experiencing the wages of sin. Let's read on in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. So here Isaiah is telling us that the punishments that Christ endured bring men back into peace with God. And now look at verse 6. This is awesome. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way, 
All right? Amen, Isaiah. We, but we already know that. We all know we're sinners. Give me a little bit more. Give me some new information. All right, here it is. Isaiah's going to say it. The spiritual atom bomb that God drops on us. Check it out. Okay? We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is absolutely positively amazing and we have sometimes i think we've heard this so many times that we forget how awesome this is how incredible this is the lord has laid on him the sins of us all somehow god takes my sin and he lays it on jesus theologians call this the doctrine of substitutionary atonement And your Bibles, depending on your translation, you may have the word in there, propitiation. Propitiation. A substitute. You have someone being a substitute for you. What is a substitute? A substitute is someone who is standing in the place for you. You were supposed to do something, but someone else ended up doing it for you. That's what a substitute is. You were supposed to be crushed. For your own iniquities. And Jesus was crushed on your behalf. The wages of sin is death. Those wages were owed to you for the work of sin you've done. Instead, Jesus receives those wages. Or to put it another way, you owed God a massive debt that was impossible for you to pay off except in hell forever. And Jesus comes as your substitute and he pays the debt for you. He dies physically on the cross, but worse than that, he experiences the holy wrath of God the Father. And I think a lot of, I don't think some people think about it that way. They they think about the nails in his hands and in his feet and the, the beatings that he's received and all that sort of thing. But sometimes we forget that actually what is going on there is something a lot worse than having nails driven through your hands. It is experiencing and absorbing the wrath of a holy God who has been offended by sin. And God lays our iniquities, our sins, on Jesus, and he treats Jesus as a sinner. That's what he's doing on the cross. He's treating Jesus as a sinner. And he pours out his wrath that you and I deserve. He pours that out on Jesus. Okay, when when Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Cup, that that word appears often throughout the Bible, and often that that cup cup is, is, is a metaphor for the wrath of God. Jesus was in anguish. He wasn't in anguish over the upcoming beatings and the crucifixion as much as he was dreading the wrath of God and the separation from his Father. And he faced the full force of God's wrath on the cross and somehow, in a few hours, Jesus absorbed what would take an eternity for you and I to absorb. He endured hell. Literally, he endured it. Hell. Now here's the other thing. 
why could we have not just been punished for our sins a little while? Maybe a few thousand years in hell. Why, why couldn't that work? That seems pretty bad, right? You wouldn't want to spend a few thousand, you wouldn't want to spend one minute in hell. Why, why couldn't we have done that just for a little while? And then that would have been sufficient to pay the price for our sins. The reason why it can't be that way, and it's the other way, as far as eternal hell, the reason why is because in a just system, in a just system, there is a correlation between the severity and and extent of the punishment to the severity of the offense. In a just system, there's a correlation between those two. If you steal a Snickers candy bar, what's going to be your punishment for that? Well, you may have to pay restitution. What, two bucks? I don't know how much candy costs these days. Maybe you're banned from the store for a time or something like that. Maybe you have to just say you're sorry. If you throw someone in prison for 10 years because they stole a Snickers bar, that would not be appropriate. There's not a proper correlation between the offense, the crime, and the punishment. Now, let's take another crime. If you abuse an animal, that's considered more serious than stealing a Snickers bar. Michael Vick knows all about that. There are fines and there's, there's prison for that kind of behavior. But even as horrible as animal abuse is, people don't get life sentences for it, do they? People don't go to the electric chair for that. But generally, people see that as more offensive than stealing a candy bar, so the punishment is worse. The punishment has to correlate with the offense in a just system. If you attack and injure a human being, you can face more severe punishment because we generally recognize a person has greater value than a dog. Now, what about if you kill a human being? Well, in our, our system, that is the most serious of crimes, and we reserve the most severe of punishments for that kind of crime, like life in prison or execution. And why? In a life sentence or in an execution, what are we doing? We are making a statement about the value of the person that the crime has been committed against. We are saying that we consider a human being of such worth that it would be an insult for the punishment for murder to be a $20 fine. That would be a complete and utter insult. No, the only thing that matches the value of the person that's killed is the life of the other person. So the the murderer must give up his life in prison or through execution. You take the life of a human, you endure life in prison or death. Now, with that said, what if the offense is, is commi- that is committed is not against a dog, not against a human, but against a person of infinite worth, infinite worth, limitless worth, eternal worth. What kind of price can you pay for a crime of that magnitude? Seventy years in hell is not enough 
10,000 years in hell is not enough. The only way for a finite person to pay for a crime against an infinite person is an infinite, everlasting judgment. Punishment. And this is where the beauty of the cross comes in. Since man has sinned, a man has to pay for that sin. They had animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament also makes clear, the Bible makes clear, the blood of bull and goats, that's not sufficient. Because it was a man who sinned. A man has to pay the price. And it can't be, uh, can't be another kind of, can't be uh, like an angel. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is the archangel Michael. There's a problem there. You're having an angel pay for the sins of a man? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't work. It can't be another sinner paying the debt. He's got his own debt to worry about that he can't pay. It has to be a man who has no debts. But it also has to be an eternal being. Someone who can absorb the full force of God's wrath. Something that would take an eternity for you and I to pay. We need someone who can do that in just just in a moment in time. And therefore enter the God-man. The infinite God. and and, and, And a man in one person. Jesus Christ can pay the debt because he doesn't owe a debt. He's not a sinner. And he can pay it because he is a man. And he can pay it in one afternoon on the cross at Calvary because he is infinite. Through the cross, you not only have a propitiation, by the way, you have uh, imputation. In imputation, you have an exchange that is going on. Paul in 2 Corinthians, and I think Paul probably has Isaiah 53 in mind when he's writing this, but Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is taking our sin. Our sin is imputed to him. But we get something back from Jesus. Okay, we're giving Jesus Jesus is getting our sin, but we're getting something back. We place our faith in Christ. We get Jesus' righteousness. Jesus lays on him our iniquity, and God lays on us Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' sinlessness, his perfection. Jesus is regarded as the sinner and receives wrath. God's people are regarded as righteous and receive life and sonship. You want to talk about turning the world upside down. This is turning reality upside down. I'm looking at a room full of ex-rebels. People who have committed all kinds of wicked and evil acts before God. People who have done a lot of bad things. And I'm in this category too. Right there with you. And you've got things in your life and your past that you are deeply ashamed of. 
you would never want the rest of us to know about, but the reason why the gospel is such good news, the reason it turns the world upside down, is because in the gospel, no one is so bad that they cannot be saved. And God knows all about those bad things that you have done that you really don't want the rest of us to know about. And he took those things on himself, and God treated Jesus as if he had done those things that you have done. Murder, lust, greed, idolatry. He treats Jesus on the cross as somebody who did those things. As somebody who did what you did. What I did. And I say to you, what a great love. That God would do something like that. What a great Savior. And this Isaiah 53 Savior, one who is crushed, one who receives stripes on our behalf, one who is smitten by God, this is what Christmas really is all about. Jesus came to die a shameful and horrible death. He came to be smitten, struck down, and crushed by God. That is what Christmas is all about. Forget about Christmas presents and Yuletide and Frosty the Snowman and Jimmy Stewart movies and even the warm, sentimental, sanitized manger scenes, the nativity sets that we set up. The, the, the baby came to be nailed to a wooden cross and to be a propitiation for sins. As the Apostle John says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Paul in Acts 17, doesn't stop talking to the Jews, doesn't stop in his discourse with the Jews at the sufferings and death of Christ. He says it was also necessary that Christ rise from the dead. This is significant. Jesus on the cross satisfied the payment for sins, and he did not stay in an eternal state bearing God's wrath. And he did not stay dead. Three days later, Jesus walked out of the tomb, still sinless, still holy, and still the Son of God. And those who are united to Christ through faith in him are no longer in Adam. They are in Christ, this, who is the second Adam. When you are united to the first Adam, what was true of him is true of you. You were Dead in your sins, you are a rebel against God, separated from him, bound for hell with eternal death as your destiny. Now that you are in Christ, you are united to Jesus, and what is true of Jesus now becomes true of you. You are alive to God. You are counted as a son. You are reconciled to God. You are bound for heaven, possessing eternal life with resurrection from the dead as your destiny. That is a message that can turn the world upside down. You don't need to be rich. You don't need to be powerful. You don't need to be a world leader to change the world and really make a difference. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Hear what Paul is saying there. Paul's describing people in this room. Okay? Not many of you in this room are wise by worldly standards. All right? There are not many in this room who are powerful. I don't think there's anyone here of noble birth. I don't think. You can let me know after the service. That'd be interesting. But I don't think so. But there are weak people in this room. There are unimpressive people in this room. There are people who the world would look down on and say, those people? Movers and shakers? Those people making a difference? There are foolish people in this room. These are the kind of people that God uses. God is choosing lowly people like me and like you to do his work so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And what is the work that God is doing in the world? What is God, what is going on that is turning the world upside down? And why, wherever Paul was going, things were being thrown into a tizzy and people were getting outraged and upset and lashing out at him? What was going on there? I'll tell you what's going on. The world is not actually right side up. And Paul was not actually turning the world upside down. It was actually the exact opposite of what was going on. The world was in a perfect right-side-up state before Adam sinned. When he sinned, everything changed, though. Death entered the world. Sin corrupted everything, including human nature. The very earth is cursed and affected, the Bible teaches. When Adam fell, the whole cosmos fell with it, with him. And so everything is twisted and perverted and corrupted and a pale shadow of how things were in the garden, in the paradise of God. And when you have a corrupt world and a corrupt system with corrupt humans, well, that's all going to seem very normal and natural and good and right. (laughs) If you're a corrupt person living in a corrupt system, it's going to seem right, it's going to seem natural, it's going to seem normal. And if if you've been living upside down your whole life, and that's all you know, well, then in your mind, everything is fine. Everything is normal. Everything's good. But when Jesus became incarnate, something happened. John tells us what happened in John chapter 3. John says, the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And the opposition that Paul received, the opposition that you have sometimes felt when you are preaching the gospel, the stir and the uproar and the controversy that takes place when a Muslim converts to Christianity in Afghanistan. I'm talking about Saeed Masa in particular. I sent some of you an email about Saeed. He was arrested as part of a crackdown on Muslim converts to Christianity in Afghanistan. As far as I know, President Karzai has done nothing to help. I hope somebody can prove me wrong about that. But the latest news that I've gotten is that Saeed's life is on the line and he could be executed for embracing Jesus. This global opposition to the gospel, 
whether it was Paul being hounded, whether it's our brother Saeed in, in an Afghan prison, whether it is our own American culture that lampoons Jesus Christ and mocks him and mocks his followers, all of this is because the gospel is seen as a threat to the world system. I'm serious about this. What you believe and what you preach and what you proclaim is seen as a threat to one degree or another. It is a threat against this present corrupt world system which corrupts men and women, which, 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 uh, which corrupt men and women feel comfortable in. And when you come in like Paul with the gospel message, it totally rocks their world and they don't like it. They don't like Jesus. They don't like the, the light. They like the darkness because their deeds are evil. And so the message that you preach to them seems backwards. It, it, it seems upside down. It's why sometimes you get a blank look when you witness to lost people. They look at you like you're on a different planet. It's why sometimes you may get ridicule or even hostility. Because when you proclaim Christ with boldness, as I talked about last week, when your message is Bible-centered, when you preach the sufferings, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, that message seems to be something that turns their world upside down, and they don't want anything to do with it. But here's the exciting part. In truth, what God is doing is not turning the world upside down. It's actually turning things right side up. What God is doing in Christ is all about cosmic redemption. It's all about curse reversal. It's all about doing a great work, which seems from one angle to be turning everything upside down, everything on its head, but from another angle, from another angle, you see what you see is really a restoring of everything to its rightful place. That's what's going on in redemption. In the curse, you have people who, while they are in God's image, that image has been warped and perverted so that they are not rightly reflecting God. But in redemption, you have the people of God being changed and and conformed to the image of Christ more and more over time until in the next stage, they will reflect Christ perfectly. In the curse, you have man as an enemy of God. In redemption, you have reconciliation between God and man. In the curse, you have humans who are in strife with one another, fighting with one another. In redemption, you have people from different races and backgrounds who previously would have been at each other's throats, now worshiping side by side. In the curse, man lives his life uh, like he is autonomous, like he is his own king. But in redemption, man brings himself under the proper and joyful submission to the king of kings. In the curse, man was expelled from the Garden of Eden. In redemption, the people of God will inherit the new heavens and the new earth and a land that is even better than Eden. In the curse, we bear the weight of our own sins, having an eternity of hell before us. In redemption, Jesus becomes our sin bearer and our intercessor before God the Father removing our guilt and our shame. I love the Christmas song, Joy to the World. And I love the the line where it says, No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. I love that. 
And just as the curse is universal and cosmic in scope, so is the curse reversal. It's all about turning the world right side up. And God wants you to be a part of his plan in doing that. Your part to play is to spread the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Your part is to proclaim that, to, be an anna- uh, to, to, to make an announcement of that, to be a herald of that. Your part is to be bold about it. Your part is to tell people what the Word of God says about these matters. Your part is to talk to people about the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Your part is to proclaim Him as Lord and King of the universe. And that is what Christmas is all about. Listen, a lot of you are going to probably see uh, family members this holiday season that don't know Christ. Others of you are going to have opportunities to rub shoulders with lost people. Will you tell them? Will you tell them why Jesus came? Will you do that this Christmas? Will you pray to God for boldness? I know a lot of us struggle with that, with boldness in regards to sharing our faith. I struggle with that too. But would you pray that God would give you boldness to share this wonderful message with people this holiday season? Can we start praying? I'm serious about this. Can we start praying that we would be like Paul? God may not be calling you to travel the world like Paul, but can we start praying that in our own little sphere of influence that things would start to be turned upside down or right side up? That God would use us to be part of that? Can we start praying about how Harbins can be a church that can be accused of turning the world upside down? I don't have a list of answers right now, guys, on... on, on what that looks like. I don't have some list of official programs and a bunch of things to lay before you right now saying, here are the things that Harbins will do to turn the world upside down. I actually don't believe such a movement starts with programs. I believe it starts with you when you leave here today. It starts with how you live this week away from this building, away from any official church programs or ministries or anything like that. It starts with how you live this week. It starts with the conversations you have with people who don't know Christ. I'm not saying that the church can't have occasionally some official ministries or things we can do together. That's great. We're going to have a Christmas outreach coming up real soon. I hope you all will participate in with us together as we blanket some neighborhoods around here. But we are not a program-driven church. So don't wait for a program to begin turning your world, your sphere of influence, upside down. Get on your knees and ask God today what he wants you to do, and it's going to look different for everybody in this room. There's no cookie-cutter answer, but figure it out. Don't waste your life. Don't pour yourself into things that don't last. And I can already sense possible questions like, well, does that mean I can't watch football this afternoon? Does that mean I can't play a video game every now and then or just have a little diversion from time to time? You know what? I'm not going to answer that question. I'll let you and the Lord talk that one out together. But you you may want to ask the Lord the question, do I watch too much TV or play so many video games or spend so much time surfing the net looking at nonsense 
or pour so many hours into amusing myself that it is choking the opportunity that I have to be a real change agent in this world and really make a difference. I'd like to all of us be in prayer about that this week. Now, there may be some of you in this room who you actually need your life turned right side up. You haven't been living for God. You come to church and you do the Christian thing, but you have never really put your faith in Jesus Christ. You have never really bent the knee to him and received him as Lord and Savior. If you haven't, that's the biggest waste of a life that I can think of. Why deny Christ? Because I got this stuff over here? This lifestyle over here that I'm going to have to give up? There's, there's no stuff. There's no lifestyle. There's no treasure that you could possibly obtain that's better than Jesus. That's more wonderful than Jesus. That's more beautiful than Jesus. That's more satisfying and fulfilling and pleasurable and joyful than Jesus Christ. And there is no tragedy worse than hearing about Christ, rejecting Christ, and remaining in your sins forever. You don't have to do that. You do not have to do that. If you want new life, then just believe him, trust him, receive him, place your faith in him. And if you haven't a clue what that means, what that looks like, what I'm talking about, come and talk to me after, it's over, after this is all over. Man, you would make my day if you wanted to talk to me about this. I, Pastor Steve's the same way. There's a lot of folks in this room that would just, they would set everything aside to talk to you more about those things, about how Jesus can turn your world right side up. Let's pray together. What a great God and what a great Savior. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you that you sent a baby whose destiny it was to pay the wages of sin. Father, don't let this Christmas go by without all of us having some kind of opportunity to give glory to you by talking about what Christmas is all about, by sharing with someone what Christmas is really all about. Father, there are people out there who will laugh at us, who will scoff at us, who will reject us, but you know what? There are also people out there who when they hear the message, they will believe. I know you have people out there that are waiting, that will believe when the message is shared with them. God, I pray that you would not let us waste our lives and that you would not let us waste our church, but that we would be on mission for you and that if we could just be a small part of your cosmic plan to turn things right side up, what a wonderful privilege and blessing that would be. In Jesus' name, amen.
so good to just hear about the cross and hear about our unworthiness and God's deep love for us. And I'm, I'm just glad that hearing that still affects me. And I hope, I hope that I never get over it. I hope that I never get over the gospel. I hope it never stops affecting me. Um, and I, I hope the same uh, for all of us. Let's sing how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory Behold the man upon the cross my guilt upon his shoulders ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything No gifts, no power, no wisdom Oh, but I will boast in Jesus Christ His death and resurrection why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, His wound. 
Joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven, heaven and nature Let's end with this verse that Deemer talked about in the message. No more let sins and sorrows grow. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings known. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Amen. All right, I want to thank you for worshiping with us this morning, and thank you. Um, you may be seated. Yeah, that's fine. I do have a couple of announcements. I want to bring your attention to just you can pay attention to the bulletin here for information about our upcoming outreaches Deemer mentioned some of that but I want to draw your attention to a couple of things that are not in the bulletin that are coming up this next weekend that I want to share with you um, and uh, you probably got an email about these but uh, this coming Saturday the 11th uh, from 2 to 5 there's the ladies Christmas tea at our house so um, if you didn't get an email about that and you're wanting information about that just talk to Heather. It's not, it's a drop-in. Yeah, it's not two to five. It's a drop-in tea. Okay. Um, you can stay two to five. You can stay later if you want to. Uh, and then the next, next Sunday, a week from today, um, also drop-in from six to eight at our house, um, in the evening. Please don't drop in at six in the morning. Um, we're having a reception for Mark Barneycastle, who's graduating on the 15th of this month, a graduation reception for Mark. He's graduating with a Bachelor of Arts in Applied Linguistics. And if you have any idea what that is, good for you. If you don't, talk to Mark, right? Okay. All right, let me get my daughters to stop distracting here. Why don't you go back to mommy real quick? All right, finally, uh, for our outreach on the 18th, um, we need to fill... We've got our outreach materials, the, the bags, the door hangers that have a copy of the gospel, a tra- I mean, uh, the Bible, a gospel track, and um, some, uh, an invitation to our, um, our Christmas Eve service. But they didn't come stuffed, and so we need some help stuffing the bags. So if you could help us, um, if I could have two families pick up a box from my office of, of bags. There will be 50 for you to stuff. If I could have two families pick those up. And I'll give you some stuff, other stuff that we want to put in there. So um, if you guys could do, if just two families, just find me after the service, that would be great. And finally, we have a family joining our church today, and that's the Walsmans. So I'm going to have the Walsmans come on up here. The what? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Mark wanted me to mention, and we do need to mention that um, it's in your bulletin as well, that the Georgia Baptist Children's Home 
has uh, we we've had made contact with them recently. They just want to let us know that the money that we gave to them this summer they used to actually buy a, a smoker for their um, uh, for their their cottage there, and they enjoyed it for the first time, I believe, at Thanksgiving. And uh, and then they still have some money left over. They're going to be doing buying more things to help the cottage, but. Um, but your money has been used, and it's going to be continue to be used this Christmas, and I want you to be aware of that. And there's always opportunities to give towards the Georgia Baptist Children's Home or any of the ministries of support um, with the offering envelopes you have there in your seats. This is the Walsmans, and they're coming to join us today, finally. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> love you, brother. Yeah, I love you too. And uh, we, we really want to just welcome them. They are, have already really been a part of our family here uh, for over a year now and are joining our, our church family in an official way today. So I'm going to ask you, Steve, as a head of your household, uh, have you guys read and do you agree with our church covenant here at Harbin's? Yes. All right. Then we welcome you as part of our church body. And as usual, I'd like to have any of our church members who feel led this morning to come on up and just surround this family with prayer this morning. We're going to pray for them. And then they're going to add their rock to our rock pile over there. And if you're wondering what that is, it's not church discipline. We don't stone people when they, you know, or anything. No, that's, that's symbolic um, from uh, looking, first of all, talking about how we are living stones. The church body is living stones. But originally we got that symbolism from Joshua chapter 4 when the Israelites um, crossed the Jordan. They were commanded to make a monument of stone so that they could tell the next generation about the glorious deeds that God had done amongst them. And so we pile our rocks there because we are a church where the generations converge to enjoy God and change the world. And we want our kids to know what God's done in our lives. And so that's why we add our rocks over there. So let's pray for the Walsmans this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing Steve and Abby and their family to our church body. God, we pray that you would grant us the wisdom, the grace to minister to them in the way that they need ministry. Help us to be there for them, to support them during the good times and during the difficult times. God, I pray for Steve and his family, Lord, that you would put within them a spirit of service that they might work in our church and serve others. Lord, that you would help them to use their giftedness, their talents, their skills, their everything that you've given them to minister to the body. Lord, we thank you, Father, for local church bodies and that joining a church and leaving a church are not decisions that we just make willy-nilly, but they are important, gigantic, gospel decisions. So, God, I thank you that Steve and his family have made the decision to join our church. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be grow in our unity with them, that we can be a body, we can be a family, and that you can be glorified. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Rewind today. There's no opening. You'll be directly to your classes today.